He is the way and the truth and the life. We have to die in order to live. Well, good morning, Father. Good morning, John Ray. How are you? I'm good, thank you. A little bit busy this week with Father Poirier being out of town, but other than that, everything is going really well. Well, welcome to Beyond the Homily. Beyond the Homily, yeah. I always say Beyond the Gospel, but it's Beyond the Homily, uh, where we deep dive into last Sunday's homily. Um, Father Poirier, as you know, you, we've been, we're on episode 38 today. Um, and so for our listeners who maybe don't know who you are, um, today we have our pastor, Father Brady. Father Poirier is out of town. Um, so Father Brady is sitting in for, would you tell our listeners a little bit about you? You had a, um, your calling to the priesthood came a little differently than like Father Poirier's. Correct. Correct. Father Poirier, um, you know, was called to the priesthood at a much earlier age than I was. He, uh, went into the seminary right out of high school. I believe, and then went straight through his seminary training and was ordained last year. And I think he just celebrated his 27th birthday. And so still, a kid. still <laughs> young. Uh, myself, I'm a little bit different. Uh, well, a lot different. Uh, I, after high school, I went to college and got an accounting degree. And then uh, I went to law school at Ole Miss and say hotty toddy to the World Series champions, Ole Miss Rebels. <laughs> for all of our LSU fans out there. And for me, being a 30-plus year Rebel fan, our first national championship in anything uh, major that I can recall. So it's a great day of celebration. Sure. I can uh, relate being a Cajun fan. So. Yeah. Rebel Nation is happy. Yep. Uh, and then uh, after going to law school, I moved to Lafayette and, uh, and practiced law and began practicing law with the what is now known as the Anabane firm. Uh, back then it was Anabane, Donahoe, Bernard, Torian, Diaz, McNamara, and Abel. And so I practiced with them for about four and a half years and then uh, started a law firm with uh, four of the other men uh, and practiced with them for about seven years. Eventually uh, the firm uh, became known as Bourne Wilkes and Brady. And during that time is you when being the Brady. I was the Brady. Yeah. And then uh, we at the end, I guess during that time in my personal life, uh, I began to change. And so I guess you start in your late twenties for me when I began to realize that uh, life was not forever uh, and that there was an end of life. You, you begin to realize in your youth uh, where you don't even think about it, that uh, the dawn from on high breaks upon you and and you realize that uh, this life is lived for the next. And so things were going really, really well in the law practice. We were doing uh, a, a wonderful business and uh, personally and professionally, uh, things were going great. I had everything I wanted in the sense of material things. I tell the kids whenever they ask about my vocation that I was the Noah's Ark of material things. I had two boats, two cars, two houses, and you know, tell them I had a Jaguar. And they're like, well, you had a Jaguar? I said, wow. wow. <laughs> and you know, I guess around 29 or 30, I began to realize there was one thing missing in my life, and that was a spiritual life that there was a deficiency there. There was something kind of missing. And really, initially, I thought what was missing was that I was not married because a lot of my friends were married and they were beginning to have families. And then I realized, no, it was different. It was a spiritual life. And so drawing on uh, uh, my parents, 
they made some suggestions on what to do, uh, praying the rosary. Uh, they introduced me to the Liturgy of the Hours as a daily prayer. Uh, here at St. Pius, I was a parishioner here at that time, uh, going to more regular confession and uh, daily mass all kind of came together and so over the course of of I guess four years three or four years I began to realize that uh, maybe I was called to the priesthood some people along the way also mentioned that they thought I would make a good priest and so I considered it and at some point I had a very uh, uh, vivid experience in prayer that I was not where God wanted me to be uh, and that I knew where he wanted me to be and so go and that was on Holy Thursday night of 2000 in our church. In the old church. In the old church. You know, now that we're renovating it, I'm thinking we need to put a little star on the floor where I was sitting <laughs> when God uh, talked to me. Just Well, I have some friends that renovated their house and they like signed scripture and all kind of stuff like in there, uh, like they added on and it was going to be a room to bring guests. So I mean, before we put down the floor, you could go and mark that spot. And I may have to go over there and do that. That would be cool. It would be funny. But uh, in adoration on Holy Thursday after the Mass of the Lord's Supper uh, became very clear to me what I needed to do. So I went and met with my law partners. And over the course of a year, uh, we basically extracted me from the law practice. And I applied to the diocese, eventually applied to the diocese uh, to enter into the seminary and was accepted. And so... You know, there were a lot of reasons um, over the course of time about why I went. Uh, one thing was that I, I knew that I could not figure out whether or not God was calling me to the priesthood, praying a rosary in my living room. You know, that I had to I had to pick up and go and see. Uh, the other was that I'd always thought that I would be married and have a family. I'm from a, I have a big we had a big family. My mom and dad did. So there were seven kids. And when we, I always thought I'd have a big family because I really enjoyed um, growing up in a big family. The the experience was all positive. And I wanted to give that same gift uh, to my children. And so, you know, I got to thinking that I have enough I want to say doubt, and not doubt, but enough of a question of whether or not I'm called to the priesthood that it wouldn't be fair to my wife, my eventual wife, if I didn't, if I left that that question lingering, that I needed to answer it. And the only way to really answer it uh, was to go to the seminary. And so, Father Poirier and I spoke about that last week when we were talking about just vocations in general, not specifically his. That going to seminary isn't necessarily a commitment to um, to becoming a priest. It's a time of um, undistracted discernment. Correct. And I learned a lot about our faith those first two years. And as I went through the well, the, the process or going into the process, I, I told myself I had to give it two years because uh, it was a lot. It was going to be a lot of adjustment, you know, going from uh, being the center of attention at the law firm uh, to not being the center of attention at the seminary to uh, going back to a dorm room and institutional food and being told what to do each day as opposed to the opposite at, uh, in, in my law practice and in my personal life. And... 
uh, I kind of I smirk when I when I say this, but uh, my thinking was that I'll go and check it out, and and hopefully what they'll do is they'll tell me, you know, Jim, you're a nice guy. We appreciate you coming, uh, but we don't think you're called to the priesthood. And then I can wash my hands of it and say, hey, Lord, I tried, and uh, the church didn't accept me. They didn't think it was right for me, and so um, I'm happy to go back and to uh, and to live life like I had it before. So had you had that conversation with your partners about? Like if if this isn't your path, was was there an opportunity to go back to the law practice? We didn't have that specific conversation at all, no. Uh, but we did have uh, conversations that you know that if when I came back, if I left, uh, certainly that would have been an option. We left on good, good very good terms, okay. and and it was very fruitful for all of us. So there was no reason why that wouldn't be wouldn't first place. Okay. Yeah. And um, it's funny, though, one of my law partners um, did pull me aside one day. He's the one who's not Catholic. And he uh, he said, Brady, he has a very gruff voice, texted, and he said, Brady, you know, I just want to know, what are you running away from? And I looked at him, and I, I really wouldn't have thought of this myself, but I, I said, you know, John, um, I'm not running away from anything. I'm, I'm running to something. And so let's see the way it works out. And so it worked out. And after two years, it's kind of funny, there was a shift my third year where I thought, you know, I'm really called to this. And part of it was learning about our Catholic faith. I learned how much I didn't know about it those first two years with the basic courses and learning about the history of the church. So during the third year, there was a turn where uh, it certainly became more of a desire to be a priest. And then the last two years, instead of hoping they might tell me, uh, nice try, go home, I was worried that they wouldn't let me continue. And it was a complete shift in mindset, which was great. And so obviously it worked out and I ended up being ordained at uh, 40 years old. And uh, that was in 2006. And so uh, in a few weeks, I'll celebrate, I guess, my 16th anniversary uh, in the priesthood. So a couple of things that you said, uh, just to reiterate, um, for for those that are listening that m- maybe feel like God may be calling them to the priesthood, um, you, you couldn't properly, you didn't feel like you could properly discern that, praying a rosary in your living room. You needed to go away. So, you know, seminary is that time of undistracted discernment where God may say no. I mean, you and I both know people that uh, he said no to. You were in seminary with some of those people. Um, I'm thinking about Matt Ardoin, who's at Wisdom. So, Matt, if you're listening, hey. Um, but but he 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 discerned out. He, he got a clear call that that's not where God was calling him during that process. The second thing is, and I, I think it's kind of awesome, is that you had this desire to have a large family. Welcome to St. Pius. <laughs> More than a few people have, have mentioned that. And, you know, you're right. You'll hear it said by seminarians at times. And, um, well, two things that I would just mention for those who may be listening and may be interested in a religious vocation, whether it be uh, priesthood or um, consecrated life. First is that, you know, when I was going through this change, so to speak, I was looking at life a little differently. Uh, Bishop Gerald. Uh, lived and had a camp in the same area where I had a, a fishing camp in Cocodry and, and he would walk by and we'd visit and he was the bishop in home of Thibodeau at the time so I did not know him well and he would stop by and he would walk and, and I was cleaning fish and if I was outside we'd visit for a bit and he stopped by one time when I was 
cleaning fish and we got to visiting and I was telling him that uh my life was going really well that, you know, physically I was feeling really good. The law firm was doing great. Um, everything was clicking on all cylinders. I said, except for the spiritual life, I said, my spiritual life, I, I need some work on that. I had come to the realization that it wasn't family that I was missing or marriage, that it sure. was a spiritual life and everything else would come from it. And I said, you know, and I meant this tongue in cheek. I said, if I had a spiritual life, you know, I might just go in the seminary. And without missing a beat, he looked at me and he said, well, you got to leave us something to do. In other words, formation is a process. You don't have to be perfect to go in. Mm. And a lot of people, I think, are worried that they're not, in their mind, perfect. And so they shy away from the call to the priesthood. And then the second part is that many seminarians, when they do get in, will say, uh, I was not called to the seminary. I was called to the priesthood and kind of dismiss that formative part of the time in the seminary, the discernment. And I would disagree with that statement. I would say that we are called to the seminary first to discern. And when someone goes into the seminary, and by the way, we have, looks like two new seminarians from our parish starting this year, which is great news. But when someone goes in, my prayer is not that they be ordained. My prayer is that they'll be given clarity of discernment. In other words, they know what God wants them to do, because that can be a struggle sometimes. Uh, and then on the other side, the fortitude to do whatever that is. And that clarity of discernment, that fortitude does not only apply to if you're called to the priesthood and you know you're called to the priesthood to do it, but also if you know you're not called to the priesthood, uh, that you have the fortitude to leave. Because sometimes in a case, let's say, like Father Poirier, who goes in very young, and they've been in the seminary for six years, so all of their adult life, and they've always thought they were going to be a priest, and they receive a clear sign that maybe they're not. Well, sometimes you can get caught up in looking at a goal instead of a vocation, and leaving where you've been your entire adult life can be very difficult, even if you're clearly not called. And so I always pray for that fortitude that whatever God wants you to do, that you receive the message clearly, and then you're given the fortitude to do what that message uh, is. And so it's something very important because if one is ordained and they have questions or doubts about it, then it ends up being a, a problem like any sacrament of service. Actually, this can be the same thing in marriage, mm -hmm. is if there's not a strong foundation for the decision to be ordained or the decision to be married, that can come back and be fodder for the devil with doubts down the line. Yep. And it can also make someone not so happy in their vocation. And we want priests to be happy and joyful that they know what they're doing is the service of the people of God. And that's their vocation. And yes, they can have a very big family, uh, like here at St. Pius, um, in, in, the, uh, uh, in the fulfillment of that vocation. So uh, it, it, I do pray for those two things. Uh, clarity and and fortitude and if you have those two things then i think um, then the foundation for the for the vocation whether it be in marriage uh diocesan priesthood consecrated life uh, that foundation can be firm yeah i think that's such a huge takeaway for you know people discerning marriage engaged couples for people thinking about seminary and in seminary um that that we discern well and that we listen, you know, to the promptings, that we have somebody to discern with us, right? Um, because we, sometimes when we discern in isolation, we 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 miss 
Correct. You know, we miss the promptings. And then outside of our vocation, just as Catholics in general, just a constant discernment of where God's calling us to, maybe not in our vocation, but, but just in life in general. You know, I think a lot of people are trapped in a job or a situation or, and, and, and I think God may be inviting them out of that or into something new and they miss it because they settle into just, this is the way life is, you know? And that's very important because if you look at discernment, that being fallen creatures, we need that check. We can't trust ourselves, particularly on major life decisions, without uh, what we would say the gift of the Holy Spirit of counsel. And so some people have that. So all seminarians are required to have a spiritual director. And really all priests should have a spiritual director in good practices, although it's not uh, you it's know, not required. required. Yeah. Like the Liturgy of the Hours or certain prayers. And then... Uh, also, uh, that in that journey, uh, that having a discernment that's clear, uh, it helps with the spiritual director giving uh, that honest advice about gifts and those kind of things uh, that are required for the vocation. And and for married, it, it applies, like you said, to all uh, that, you know, having someone that would uh, help you. Uh, and who has good judgment and that you can be open with completely is something that's uh, that's critical in yeah. the way we move through life. That's such a great takeaway. I'm going to take a hard right. Okay. I think this is great. I think our audience maybe has a, I have a better understanding of your call. Some things that I missed that we've talked about it. Um, but before we were talking about, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about what we would talk about, and we talked about, you know, diving into what happened last Friday with the Supreme Court's decision um, overturning Roe versus Wade. And while we were chatting, I had the aha of, oh wait, you were an attorney. So uh, from a legal standpoint, like, how did we get, you know, for all of my life, I've been pro-life, right? I can remember going pray in Baton Rouge, you know, with groups. I've been to right life march. I've been part of pro-life rallies. Like it's just been, and I think for many of our listeners, it's probably something that's ingrained. Um, so Friday was a huge victory for the pro-life movement and for pro-life people. Um, how did we get to that legally? And so, so the question is, how do we get there? And um, why is it important that we continue to pray? Good question. And there will be a lot of confusion on exactly what the decision on Friday, which is the Dobbs decision. And so I'll call it Dobbs um, from here on out so people know what I'm talking about. Because no one's really mentioned the name of the actual case. Everybody's mentioning overturning Roe versus Wade. And it was the the heartbeat bill in Mississippi, right? Uh, it was, it was a it was a Mississippi law, so it was, I think, Dobbs versus Jackson. Uh, it was a health clinic, but I think it would probably be known as Dobbs versus Jackson. Okay. Um, but not the city of Jackson. I think it was a health care, um, uh, alleged health care, which would say um, services um, group. And we have to go back, and you made a, an, an interesting point. You don't know of a time when there was not. Roe versus Wade, in effect. Um, actually, I do know, yes. because that was in 1973, and I was born in 1966. Because you're old. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I am, and getting more so each day. So, I remember vaguely the uh, the decision coming out, and uh, uh, certainly the disappointment 
in uh, what was decided. And it was every bit as controversial then uh, as it is today. And so what was going on before Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973 uh, was that generally speaking, uh, for large parts of our history, uh, abortion was regulated by the states and generally speaking outlawed. Uh, that it was not a it was an illegal practice there had been some for lack of a better word loosening of of those prohibitions uh, over the course of some years in the 1960s and the process was kind of playing out until uh, this case of Roe versus Wade and so uh, in Texas uh, that's where the case is from uh, there was a uh, the argument made in a Supreme Court case uh, that uh, there was a fundamental right to an abortion, and the Supreme Court took it up and then agreed with that. Uh, and at that point, it basically removed the power of the states to regulate abortions within their territories, which is something which is something that our constitutional Constitution generally provides for in the Tenth Amendment that uh, every non-enumerated power, uh, you know, not given to the federal government, devolves to the states. And so a lot of things are supposed to be regulated by the individual states, not by the federal government. And so at that point, there was a big shift because once there was a claim that there was a fundamental right to an abortion, uh, then... The states could not regulate it uh, except on a very narrow basis for a compelling state interest. It has to be narrowly tailored uh, to um, to promote um, a compelling state interest. And very and almost nothing ever passes that level of scrutiny. It's called strict scrutiny in legal terms. And so at that point, every law that regulated abortions on the state level was basically unconstitutional. And so at that point, uh, we began living under that law, and there have been various tests throughout 50 years. And to remember, the Supreme Court only takes up certain cases uh, each year, and it doesn't necessarily uh, pick and choose uh, topics. There are some things that it has original jurisdiction, but most of it is effectively discretional jurisdiction. And so over the course of that time, there have been different uh, cases. Planned Parenthood versus Casey shifted Roe versus Wade from, uh, I think, a trimester uh, type of analysis to a viability analysis on the state's interest in regulating it. Uh, but in the end, throughout the course of the last 50 years, you know, Roe versus Wade has been criticized both by, if you want to say liberal or conservative uh, jurists, that it was poorly reasoned and poorly decided. So this case of Dobbs went back and looked and went through the history and went through how it was decided. And, and part of it was the governmental, federal governmental overreach into states' rights. And by the way, a very similar dynamic happened with gay marriage a few years back. If you'll remember, several states were beginning to enact gay marriage laws that permitted it, and some were not. 
And instead of letting the process play out among the states, the Supreme Court intervened and declared a marriage among same-sex persons to be a fundamental right. And so it kind of preempted what the states were doing. It's kind of an interesting um, comparison on the reasoning for it. Um, it's a different issue, as many on the Supreme Court said in Dobbs, but it, it was the same dynamic. And so what happened in Dobbs is the Supreme Court just said, we don't have the power to do this. It's not in the Constitution. It's not within our purview. That Roe versus Wade was an overreach. And it was noted at the time in that dissent that it was. It was an exercise of, I believe the quote is, raw judicial power. And it is also noted in Dobbs that Roe versus Wade read like legislation, like a legislative document. And that's where the term judicial legislation comes from, is that uh, the, the the government, uh, I'm sorry, the judicial branch of the federal government uh, was now acting as kind of a super legislature and not just deciding constitutional cases, yes or no, but then enacting legislation in, in those decisions. And now it's basically, you know, saying that we don't have the power to take this away from the states. And if anything's going to be done on the federal level, uh, then it would have to be done by uh, the federal legislators. That would be the House and the Senate. So, um, so to the point, the the Roe v. Roe versus Wade, um, in some believe that the Supreme Court was acting like Congress or the Senate and enacting law instead of being a judicial oversight to the case. Is that right? Did I say that correct? And essentially, and so just kind of breaking even, it down for somebody that missed what you said. The 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 case even says this themselves, that they don't have any idea what's going to happen regarding abortion legislation in the future, uh, whether states uh, permit it or don't permit it, whether uh, the federal legislature tries to regulate it or doesn't try to regulate it. They said that's not their job. Their job was to determine whether or not there was a constitutional right to uh, an abortion. And that question is quite simply a yes or no question. So they reversed the decision of Roe versus Wade saying that there was to say that there is not. It cannot be found in the Constitution or in the history of the United States or uh, implicit in any of the other rights. And so they basically just said it's not within our power to do what Roe versus Wade did. And now it's up to the legislatures to decide to do what they want to do. So uh, we kind of mentioned this before. That there's two places where legislatures exist. One is in the federal government, uh, in the House and the Senate. Uh, it could try to legislate abortion uh, and create some sort of right uh, to it that would preempt uh, state legislatures. I'm sure there would be a lot of litigation over that. And that could also bring up the issue of, uh, you know, if there's a pro-life uh, government in in power and the House and the Senate and the and to some extent of course we think of the presidency um, then they would uh, maybe repeal legislation that was not pro-life and vice versa if there was uh, 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 anti-life legislature legislatures and president 
And, you know, could we have this going back and forth as there are shifts in power uh, in the federal government of legislation be in, being enacted and, and then being vacated? Uh, but, and also, they, they may not do anything at all on the federal level, and it may be left to the states. And uh, if that's the case, then, of course, in Louisiana, we enacted uh, the Love Life Amendment. We have trigger laws that would outlaw abortion if Roe versus Wade was overturned, which it has been. Now we would say that our Constitution has no uh, saying one way or the other on abortion. Uh, therefore, it's up to the legislature or the people to either amend the Constitution or to enact legislation. Uh, imagine Louisiana being a very pro-life state uh, would enact uh, some type of prohibition or strict limitations, whereas a place like New York, uh, where uh, there's a very uh, a permissive abortion rights up to, unfortunately and, and sickeningly, uh, partial birth abortion, where I believe that's the place where the legislature standed and applauded uh, when they passed that legislation. A very, very sad uh, visual uh, of people rejoicing in the destruction of human life uh, at nine months pregnant, if you think about it. So uh, I don't think it's anything to applaud, even if you're pro-choice. But uh, I think you're going to find um, a very big disparity between states, but we have that in other laws, too, uh, whether it's concealed carry and those kind of things. I'm trying to stay away from liberal and conservative, by the way, as terms, because classical liberalism uh, is, is different than liberalism today. And, and there is a difference. Like, I would say I'm very liberal when it comes to a lot of things, like school choice, uh, the right to bear arms on the Second Amendment. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I kind of laugh and about the, the, the labels that we put on people. I'd rather talk about ideas and where the government should and should not legislate or intervene and what powers does the government have to limit them. We've always been a, a limited government, and I'm a big believer, uh, along with, I'm with Augustine, that that government should only do what it needs to do to properly order society and no more. Uh, today, I think on the other side of the equation, and uh, our Pope may be actually a little bit different than I am on this, uh, but it's not something infallible or teaching as of yet, um, is that the government should promote the good and take an active role uh, in the regulation of society. I just think it's, it's dangerous when that happens because then you begin to have values and morals forced upon people uh, from a governmental point of view, and, and that actually leads to theocracy and not democracy, and which is kind of the mantra right now is that democracy is threatened, which it's not. I don't see how that is, because right now voters now have the ability to directly hold their legislators accountable for any votes they have regarding abortion. So it's a, it's a, a lot of twisting of words and a lot of confusion, but I hope what I've said was able to maybe clear it up a, a little bit. I think so. So um, where we we stand today um, right now the states hold the power in unless the federal government correct chooses to enact legislation or amend the Constitution or any of that right now the states hold the power so in Louisiana as of right now abortion is illegal or limited I think that there's some rare cases right now I'm not sure what the trigger uh, when I say trigger what uh, legislation for those who may be wondering um, 
that they enacted legislation that would only go into effect should Roe versus Wade be overturned. So, so overturning Roe versus Wade was the trigger for the legislation to become effective. And I don't know exactly what the uh, the terms of that legislation are, but I know it was intended to be very limiting, and I don't know uh, how limiting it, it, it is. Yeah, so it, it's interesting that, like, for 50 years now, we've had the Right to Life march, right? I would imagine that there's going to be some cele- celebratory march, but next January, we probably won't have the Right to Life march, right? So what does that mean for our pro-life people? Do we just stop praying? I don't, I don't think so, because what I hear you saying is um, our, our legislatures now have the ability to enact pro-choice laws, laws that would uphold abortion. In theory, our state could become a pro-choice state over the years. So we still have to, as a pro-life people, I think, pray for our legislatures, talk to our legislatures, continue to vote pro-life, right? Anything you want to add to that? Yes, but I I might disagree about the pro-life march. You think it'll still happen? I do. I do. Because it will... The the battle is now shifted, if you want to put it in terms of battle or struggle, um, to the to the persuasion of hearts and minds that abortion kills uh, a human being, and so that's not going to stop in a lot of places, and. As we, you know, think of what's going on in our country, I think the pro-life march will change from uh, a civil protest of the overreach of raw judicial power uh, to an attempt in, to persuade minds and hearts that abortion is just wrong and that we need to uh, respect the dignity of life like any society. And this is not a religious belief. This is a belief of simple human decency. It's a part of what we call natural law. Uh, no, Any more than we wouldn't kill somebody who's sitting right in front of us or that we wouldn't steal from somebody. There are a lot of laws that we have that are both religious and secular. And so... The pro-life march has been gradually shifting to that over the years as well. Uh, not just the injustice of Roe versus Wade, but also how we uh, persuade others to believe that very same thing. And so that's where I think it'll shift. It'll The protest, if you want to put that in air quotes, uh, will be to the injustice done in states that permitted abortion and hoping to persuade persuade the people and the legislators to uh, to not allow that practice in that state. And then also part of that is, you know, being able to bring support to uh, the mothers and the children who are in difficult uh, circumstances regarding a pregnancy, that that work won't end. And and we certainly, if we're going to be pro-life in mouth, then we have to also be pro-life in our actions. And so words and deeds go together. And so we would be supporting uh, agencies or, or charitable groups that uh, assist mothers to uh, have the materials that they need, the resources that they need to bring a baby into the world, whether it be health resources or 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 um, food 
for their child or uh, clothing, uh, you know, would go down to car seats and other such things. And we have many of those already established uh, around the country. And I think I think uh, I love what you're saying because I think as a pro-life people, we have to continue to pray that that um, pro-life absolutely. laws continue to be enacted, that the protection of the unborn in all walks of life, right? Um, and now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, we have to put our our money where our mouth has been, so to speak, right? Sure. Because. Um, the thing that I've become keenly aware of over the past few days is that, you know, there are just people that haven't been brought up like they don't know what we know. They they don't view the world through the same lens. They don't know that they've never been taught that, you know, at conception, there's a life. They don't they don't know that at some point very quickly into the pregnancy, there's a heartbeat. Right. Because we use terms like fetus and tissue and right. Um, and so they they really have no idea and they find themselves in crisis. And we could make the argument that, you know, well, they shouldn't be sinning and they should, you know, control their behavior and all of these things. And the reality is they still find themselves in crisis. And as a pro-life people, I think now is the time where we stand in that gap for them, like you're saying, to support them. Maybe to adopt their babies. Maybe to maybe maybe it's not that extreme. I mean, some people are going to be called to that, but maybe we support organizations like the Desarmo Foundation and 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 the like. And Catholic Charities and all those who who do uh, that work. And there are many other um, clinics uh, around that are pro-life and and teach both chastity, but also uh, the dignity of life when someone is expecting a child. And. You know, the term, going back to what you were just saying, that was used uh, back in the uh, mid-1980s when I was in college when this was debated, was that, uh, like you said, fetus or or zygote sometimes or whatever, um, the argument was made, well, it's just a, a blob of flesh, mm-hmm. uh, basically dehumanizing uh, the child. And now, when we look ahead some almost 40 years later you know we can see that uh, by science that it's much more complicated than that that uh, that it's not just a blob of flesh that there is a heartbeat very quickly that parts of the human person are being formed and and that it is a baby and strikingly similar to one when you now have a sonogram to look at it and it's science is kind of catching up to theology in this and that life is beginning at conception the the trimester rule I say from Roe versus Wade was so antiquated and crude and then the Casey case said it was viability was where regulation could begin but viability that line is is shifting back further and further towards the time of conception as science you know moves forward with improvements and and uh and and health care uh for i guess it's a, is it prenatal or yeah prenatal mm-hmm. what they would call medically you know that kind of science and so i i kind of tongue-in-cheek say but i mean it seriously that in this case science is trying to catch up to theology um as a um you know as a discipline i think science has caught up to technology the problem theology theology i'm sorry yeah um 
the, I think the, the issue is it's being spun by politicians and media so we don't get the facts anymore, right? Exactly. And that's why it's so important to, you know, at some of these marches and the information that's given out is what does your baby look like at different stages? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you doing when you have an abortion? Education is one of the areas where the pro-life movement has tried to uh, enhance uh, the knowledge of people who you have just mentioned, you know, have been formed not to believe that. They've never been taught about, you know, when life begins. Uh, all I know is that they're in a distressful situation, they're in distress. And, you know, they're looking for a way to alleviate uh, that distress. Uh, and oftentimes it's being uh, pushed into an abortion. And we, we want to provide the freedom to the women. Because remember, when we say women, it's only because they're carrying the baby. Um, you know, that men are every bit as responsible to it. Last time I checked, it takes two to tango. Sure. And so, you know, also having men, you know, take responsibility uh, for their children and, and then also giving women the, um, the the freedom in the sense of the resources that they need to adequately care for them. Uh, and that's just not physically, but emotionally as well. Yeah. And in order to look at the greater good of an actual life uh, being in her womb. Interestingly enough, I uh, I move into employment in the church at 19 years old because my youth group director adopted a baby who was in danger of a, abortion and looked at me and said, I was a sophomore in college, and said, you know, hey, could you could you fill the gap while I'm taking care of this baby, you know, and run youth group and and then you know and then we got a new pastor and he wanted to hire somebody and and here I am and it's just it was such a beautiful witness to me then, right? And I think that's where we we're really being called right now. So yeah. um, beautiful and extraordinary. Yeah, exactly. Um, hmm. So if you are looking for ways to help reach out to us you know we would love to put you in contact with the organizations here locally um that can 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 use your resources can use your time you know however you want to we can put you in contact with people and i also don't want to assume um if you are a woman right now or or a man and you found yourself you know in an unexpected pregnancy and you're you're scared right now because you don't know where to turn um reach out we want to help um we would love to help and i think it's important to note that you know sometimes people are afraid to come to the church or to a cleric you know to a priest or a deacon because if they are find themselves in a in a pregnancy um that is that poses difficulties uh, from a materials point of view the first thing they have to admit is that um and particularly if they're not married, is that, um, you know, they were committing a sin against the sixth commandment. And I think it's important for people to know that our job uh, is not to judge people about where they've been or what they've done. But when they come to us with a problem, our job is to help solve the problem in a way that's best under the circumstances. And so uh, the thought of what happened before uh, never really enters my mind other than in helping the person sometimes emotionally uh, because sometimes the circumstances of the pregnancy and being becoming pregnant are, are not so uh, ideal. But our job is not to judge the person. Our job is to help and then to help solve uh, the issue in a way that everybody can live. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I think it's important for people to know. You're not going to, you're not going to come here and get a, a jaundiced eye. Uh, what you're going to get, hopefully, is the hand clasp of love and let's try to figure this out. Absolutely. So, um, and great episode. Thank you so much for uh, jumping in when Father Poirier was out. Sure. We'll have Happy to have to do you it. back on. Um, 
if you've enjoyed this episode we would we would invite you to share it with your your friends be sure to like us on your podcast listener of choice um we hope that you'll have a great rest of the week and we'll see y'all at mass this weekend god bless